Things are going to start happening to me now. You've done all the reading. You're a scholar. You're a professor. You've done all the reading. You've done the intellectual heavy lifting. More or less, eat shit and die. You wouldn't know a fact if it begged you all night long. want to, like, um, you know, give the wrong impression because I am... I, I am very high. Fucking ran up behind him with a hatchet. Smash, smash, smash. Yeah, care. I'm a libertarian. What I'm getting is. Did why? you vote for Joe Jorgensen or Trump? Who? Joe Jorgensen. That was the perfect answer. Thank you. <laughs> that was Welcome, everybody, to the Libertarian Podcast Review. This is Tyler Yonke. We're still doing Tom Woods Week. Tom Woods Month. Tom Woods Extended Week. I don't know what to really tell you. It's taken forever. Uh, this is episode 3.5. It was supposed to be uh, the third day of clips featuring Tom Woods and um, clips numbers. What do we got here? Um uh, 921 through 138. No, or was it 2.5? Maybe it's 2.2. 2. <laughs> I'm so confused as to where we're even at here. Two, it was supposed to be day two, uh, episodes 461 through 920. We're halfway through those, and then we're going to the, the next one we're going to see is going to be uh, clips with respect. It's supposed to be episode three, but we're probably four or five. I don't know, 921 through 1380. Hang on, people. We've got a great slew of clips for you here today. Once again, we're walking through the Tom Woods week. We're doing zero through 2300 plus because he won't stop. Tom needs to Tom, you need to stop. Give us a chance to catch up. But he's not going to because he is Tom Woods. Thanks, everybody. Um, check these ones out. And don't forget to like, subscribe, uh, make a comment in here. Tell me that you hate me, that you like me, that you love Tom Woods. We love Tom Woods. And this is our tribute to him on Tom Woods Week. Thank you very much. Um, this is the Tom Woods show we're talking about here. But let's go into this one. This is... Presidents who screwed up. Brian Mechanic, Clanahan, big fan of him. I'm, uh, I'm from the North. I grew up in the Northwest. Uh, I live in Northern California, but I have a lot of sympathy for the the, the South in a sense. Uh, I understand all this. I've read a lot of books about this. Um, the South had the better army. They just were overrun with um, money and, you know, whatever. Uh, that's not really the point I'm making. That. I don't know why I'm saying this. Uh, I'm, I'm drinking a little bit. Brian McClanahack talks about, he has a book about presidents who screwed up America. Let's go to episode 591, a setup for why Brian McClanahan even wrote this. Title and subtitle. And, uh, okay, what made you decide the presidents have to be talked about? Have we talked about the presidents enough? Well, no. I think that we haven't talked about them enough, at least in the way I talk about them in the book. And the the idea that I followed, it actually was born out of my 2012, The Founding Fathers Guide to the Constitution. When I was doing the interviews for that, I made a statement that every president in the last hundred years, virtually every president, should have been impeached. Amen. And people were shocked by that. In fact, I was on with G. Gordon Liddy, and he got a good laugh out of that. And he said, well, I agree. <laughs> so, uh, but that was one thing that people were trying to key in on. And I said, well, you know, I need to write something that would explain why I would say that. And the yardstick I used by which to measure the presidents is how they defended their oath, which is to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution. And this has really never been done before in this kind of way. Every, it's been piecemealed. But so what I wanted to do was look at all the presidents and say, okay, we've got Barack Obama, who's awful. We, we all agree with that. But how did, how did he get here? And where did all that come from? 
And so I trace executive abuse essentially from the first administration to the Obama administration. And I pick that the title says nine, but there's actually 13 presidents in there who did a very bad job, at least according to their oath. And then I put four in uh, who I thought did a really good job, according to their oath. And uh, some of these people in the four are not really household names. Now, our, you know, your listeners are going to recognize, you know, Grover Cleveland and Calvin Coolidge. Uh, and but the person I said is the greatest president in American history is John Tyler. Uh, so maybe not a household name. And then on the other side, again, your, your listeners are very savvy, so they're going to get them. But, you know, uh, uh, Abraham Lincoln's in that group and Wilson and uh, Teddy Roosevelt, FDR, Truman, Johnson, Nixon, of course, the last four. Uh, but then also uh, Andrew Jackson and uh, George Washington, who does not escape a, a little critique as well. So uh, oh, I wanted to have this comprehensive look at the executive branch and where it's gone off the rails and maybe what we could do about it. I offer a chapter on that as well. So it was a lot of fun to write. And um, I, I think it's, it's going to be uh, maybe surprising to uh, to the mainstream reader uh, and also maybe a few surprises in there for, for your readers and listeners as well. I'm a big fan of Brian McClanahan. I listen to his podcast. Um He's got a great voice for podcasting. Okay, uh, next one, uh, GW, uh, oh, George Washington. The one that people just, they, it's like Bush. they're avoiding it like the plague, is George Washington. Now, Oh, I, let's talk about George Washington then. Uh, yeah, right. so, so George Washington. Now, I admire George Washington. He is the indispensable man. He's, he's the greatest American in, in, in American history, in my estimation. I've written about him in other books. Uh, I think he's a real American hero. He is one of the greatest of the founding generation, if not the greatest. But... As president, he did a couple of things that were wrong. And I think, again, I, I did this, and I'm going to take the sacred cows to task when we need to do it. Uh, and Washington was one of those guys. So the two things that Washington did, now you can blame Hamilton for this too, because Hamilton was in Washington's ear all the time. But the two things oh. he did was his response to the Whiskey Rebellion and oh, okay. the Neutrality Proclamation. Oh. So the response to the Whiskey Rebellion, you know, you had, of course, famously, you had this, this uh, tax revolt on the frontier, and these Pennsylvania farmers weren't going to pay the taxes, which uh, what most people don't realize is that that tax that they were, re that they re were rebelling against had already been repealed, so there was going to be no tax anyways. But they're, they're, they're in rebellion against this tax. They're, you know, they're, they're going after tax collectors, et cetera, et cetera. And so uh, Hamilton insists that the, the army be marched into Pennsylvania to put down this revolt, this tax revolt. And uh, what's really funny about that is when they show up, of course, there's nobody there. But the real part that's the constitutional controversy is that they had no permission from the state of Pennsylvania to do this. The governor of the state, Thomas Mifflin, who was actually part of the entire ratification and drafting process of the Constitution, uh, said did not give them permission to enter the state. The legislature did not give them permission to enter the state. And as per the Constitution, you need permission from a state to march the army into the state to put down a quote unquote rebellion. And that's the justification they were using. So Washington was violating the Constitution at Hamilton's request in doing this. By the way, Brian's a, a, a if you want to talk about Southern stuff, he is your go-to guy. He is great. He has a lot of knowledge. Uh, there's several people like this that um, uh, Phil Magnus has been on here um, that Thomas talked to about uh, like the 1619 project as an example. Uh, Phil Magnus has not, uh, how do I say this? He's blocked me on Twitter, <laughs> basically. Andy and I did a podcast actually with Stefan Kinsella where we talked about him taking on Hoppe and his, he, I, I love Magnus, but he goes, uh, Phil Magnus, but he, he went on with Reason and Nick and they talked about this and his uh, critique is so bad. It's, 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 um, it makes, you know, then th this is what I said. Um, I'm like, you listen to this and it's so bad. Um, his, it's, it's a bad faith argument that he makes that makes you wonder, uh, about all the other stuff he said. He, he's great. I'm like, I take it into his 1619 and I'm like, I believe it and I'm good. And then I hear this and I go, what the hell? Now I've got, now I'm wondering about all the stuff you've said before. I'm questioning. It's ridiculous. And he blocked me on Twitter. Uh, probably rightly so. Uh, but I also didn't like the fact that he wore a uh, golf shirt 
for the interview. So um, there's that as well. Okay, uh, let's continue on with this. Um, what do we have? This one is um, John Tyler. Just because I know you. I've known you for a long time, and I know that of those four, you would most like to talk about John Tyler. Am I wrong? That's correct. Yeah. yeah. All right. So let me give you an – I mean, you have to get a 19th century figure in here. So let's talk about John Tyler. What makes him so great? Well, John Tyler, I call the greatest president in American history. By the, the way, simple- he has got a great podcast voice. I hate I hate Brian McClanahan for that. Reason that here's a guy that, that assumed office, right? The first president to assume office after William Henry Harrison kicks the bucket, and he comes in, and you have the Whigs just – exuberant about the fact they've taken Congress, they've got the executive branch, they're really going to get their, their agenda through. But they didn't think about John Tyler and who he actually was. This is a guy that cut his teeth at the table with Thomas Jefferson. And so he's a Jeffersonian. His father was, was very good friends with Thomas Jefferson. And he, had, he was the guy that gave the one speech against the force bill uh, when Andrew Jackson was trying to get that ran through Congress. So he was a states' rights Democrat. And, uh, but he, he becomes a Whig because of the nullification controversy in South Carolina. He can't, he can't support the Democrats anymore. So he comes into office, and the Whigs have a meeting with him, the cabinet, and they say, look, Tyler, here's what's going to happen. You're going to rubber stamp all our legislation uh, because we're going to run the show, and you're just going to do what we say. And Tyler says, no, no, that's not what I'm going to do. I'm the president. If you don't like it, you can resign. So um, they start passing all this legislation through the Congress. They're going to recharter or they're going to get a new charter for a third bank of the United States. They're going to get uh, federally funded internal improvements. They're going to start pushing for higher tariffs. And Tyler vetoes everything. In fact, Henry Clay, who was behind all this legislation, gets so angry. He goes to the, to the White House, which they call the executive mansion, goes to the White House, and he gets in a heated argument with Tyler. And Tyler basically just lets him have it. He says, look, uh, I'm here. I'm in the executive branch. I'm going to do what I have to do my job. You go back to the Capitol and you do what you have to do. But understand that essentially I'm going to veto everything that's unconstitutional. And they never spoke again. And in Tyler's veto messages, he actually wrote in one of the veto messages on the on the recharting of the bank, the second bill that came before him, that he has a duty to preserve, protect and defend the Constitution. And because of that, he has to veto unconstitutional legislation. Imagine that. Uh, a president doing that kind of stuff. Uh, we've seen with uh, too many of them that they don't uh, adhere to that. Uh, Biden's been slapped down many times with the Supreme Court uh, as things that he's done is unconstitutional, and he just goes ahead and doesn't give a shit. So um, last one we'll do here. What if Heritage Foundation wrote this book? And by the way, Peter Sainange is just was just on um, the Human Action Podcast with... Uh, Bob Murphy, uh, Jeff Dice wasn't on there. I don't know what the status of that podcast is going to be going forward. However, um, he's, I think he works at the, uh, Heritage Foundation. So you can't just necessarily eliminate the Heritage Foundation as uh, shit. Uh, but, uh, what if they wrote this book? Here you go. This is about the, the presidents. So the best presidents, the worst presidents in the United States. That. I, I don't hate to pick on the Heritage Foundation. Suppose the Heritage Foundation put together a book on the presidency. What would I read there? How would it be different <laughs> from yours, and how would it be different from Doris Kearns Goodwin? Well, I think it would be almost similar to Doris Kearns Goodwin. Uh, the only difference you would have is that maybe you would get someone like Ronald Reagan and the Good Ones, uh, but you would definitely see Lincoln. You'd probably even see FDR because of his activities during World War II. I mean, he, he is revered by conservatives, many conservatives, because he won World War II, uh, theoretically. So you would see Teddy Roosevelt in that list, on, on, a, on a Heritage Foundation list. Uh, uh, you you know so you would see the people that um, that Goodwin would pick. I think the only difference is maybe the Heritage Foundation would not include uh, you know Johnson. Goodwin might include Johnson. Uh, maybe they wouldn't include Truman. Go, you know Goodwin might include that. But uh, I'm what I've done is essentially flip the entire ranking system on its head. And you mentioned the classes coming up. When you get that one, okay, Doris Kearns Goodwin would also just plagiarize because that's what she does. So uh, Brian McClanahan, solid guy. Let's keep going on here. Uh, 683 rapper turns Rothbardian. You probably know uh, who this is. Uh, Robbie Bernstein. No, it's uh, Eric July. Take it away. 
what were you exposed to that made you say, yep, this is the way to go? Well, um, I grew up a hardcore leftist uh, growing up. Uh, same old story with a lot of uh, African-Americans kind of beating our head. Republicans are racist. Uh, Democrats want to help you, even though they um, want to expand uh, the state. And it wasn't until I got to college when I even knew what libertarianism was. And I got here by uh, guys like Thomas Sewell and, and Walter Williams. And it's funny because those guys aren't necessarily uh, ANCAP. Walter Williams is a libertarian, but he's not you know, necessarily an ANCAP. But those guys are reading things like basically books like basic economics and seeing what these guys have been saying for for, uh, for 30 years. And really, again, going back to the point, just extending it to its uh, logical conclusion uh, was how I got to where I'm at. So it was before I picked up any kind of, you know, uh, you know, Rothbard book or anything like that, when I had actually considered myself um, an actual ANCAP. Solid stuff. Uh, Eric July, who's featured on The Blaze a lot. Uh, this one is, I thought this was a kind of an interesting little concept, which is uh, Tom Wood talking about like, hey, look, I have black guests on. Uh, rare in the libertarian slash conservative movement. Um, some pushback on that. And this was his take. Let me tell you something about a couple of guests I've had on, or, or in particular recently, as it turns out, it was episode 666. I had a guy named T.K. Coleman on. We had a great conversation about entrepreneurship and you know making your own way and so on. And now he's a black guy, and I didn't mention that on the show. I didn't because I thought every I bet you every time this guy comes on a show, the whole show is oh you're a black libertarian. <laughs> and I thought you know I have a funny feeling he has other things to talk about. So I didn't even I didn't even mention people didn't even know his his race. But yet in and I said that to Walter Williams too. I said here you are this PhD economist, you're a genius, you know all these different fields and all the ins and outs and all the math. And yet every time you're on the radio, all they want to do is talk about race, race, race. Doesn't that bother you? But in your case, you're just gonna have to forgive me because I think it is no, it's, really it's integral to your story. Absolutely. Yeah. So so tell me how it is that you would reach out to people saying uh i know it's i know it's conventional to say the democratic party they're going to help us out how do you get people to think maybe that's not worked out so well, well uh what i've done is and I, I found this definitely attacking just not necessarily attacking this is the wrong word to use but approaching the talking points um of, of leftists in general uh, it's more so kind of turning their own logic um, against them and turning those talking points and again just really extending them all the way uh to, to the actual conclusion uh yes leftists and democrats in particular they have kind of this political monopoly on uh predominantly black uh communities and um you look at even some of the gripes of uh, activist groups that i almost disagree with uh, nearly 100 percent, but even on some issues when they get it get it right the conclusion is where they get it uh completely wrong so uh i like to you know those talking points like black lives matter they talk about the uh you know systematic racism and uh you know racism within the judicial system and and all of that and you know i like to kind of uh, and i did an article on uh being libertarian about this and saying how if african americans uh black folks understood the history they would adopt libertarianism almost immediately interesting okay uh more eric july i mean eric's uh, fascinating i love when he comes on these different shows uh, we did have Walter Williams uh, came out as a guest. This one is his music online. By the way, I love one of their covers um, of uh, Lincoln Park. Anyway, go ahead. I mean, are you finding that on balance, the Internet is a real help for you? Ooh, that's a good question. I mean, it depends on which way you want to uh, approach it, because Internet has absolutely ch kind of changed. Uh, the, I would say the economics, I did a video about this, uh, economics of actually being in a band, um, and which is why we do, this is kind of on a side note, I don't want to go too much in uh, to it unless it's uh, an actual question about it, but the economics of being in a band has kind of changed with uh, the internet age. Uh, but as far as getting that, getting that information out there, it is a, a very useful tool for guys like us who are very skeptical. We've been down that road of dealing with um, labels and stuff like that. So it's so much that you can do uh, in spreading it, 
Uh, but it's a kind of a catch because then you have to kind of figure out how do you make this actually lucrative if it's something that you want to be able to do um, full time, which with us, it's a little different because we have so much to offer aside from just the music itself. And, uh, you know, we talk about the message and stuff like that. You no, know, we're always doing talks and, and uh, stuff in which we can get our message out there. And it's also kind of monetize it. Uh, but it's I can understand why a lot of bands, definitely in the sub genres that we kind of middle in, they can't they don't really they're not really able to do that. So okay, uh, once again, it's uh, Lincoln Park waiting for the end, uh, covered by Backwards. That's his his uh, metal metal group, uh, Eric July's, which I think is fantastic. While I get the next clip up, we'll just play a little bit of this because I it's by the way, it's one of my favorites. <laughs> Backwards, a little bit different than a lot of the stuff they do, but um, this is a this is a great song by Lincoln Park. Okay, we'll we'll, we'll move on, uh, even though they don't know what it takes to. Let's, that's, uh, let's go to the Adam Smith one here. Um, sorry, guys, you're going to have to be quiet here. I'm going to move you to the end, and then we'll talk about this. Uh, Gene Epstein came on the show. Gene Epstein, I, and I'm trying to hit all the big hitters here, um, but he comes on the show, episode 704, Adam Smith, not the founder of economic science. Uh, Tom just had a recent episode, and I'm trying to remember the gentleman's name, but he came back and he tried to contradict a little bit, a uh, pushback against uh, Gene Epstein. But Gene Epstein, um, what's the Soho form there, big guy? Uh, please, everybody, write this down and go into the website because you can register right now and get an invitation. Uh, it's called thesohoforum.org. I think everybody can spell Soho, the Soho Forum, continuous.org. And uh, uh, some of the young people on my uh, staff advised me to give it that sort of locational name because it is going to be in a huge art gallery in Soho, uh, capacity 156. Seats, which uh, would have meant, of course, that uh, people would have been out on the street when uh, when, when Tom uh, de- uh, debated Michael Malice. But uh, mostly, uh, and then there's a downstairs as well. The SohoForum.org has. By the way, um, uh, we'll just give a little bit of that. Uh, the Soho Forum, I've really enjoyed a lot of their stuff. They put it up on Reason, um, ended up uh, posting it on their website or their their YouTube uh, Reason TV, and um, one of the, Scott Horton the. Bill Crystal was fantastic. It was quite an annihilation of uh, Neocon. Everybody wanted to see. What we're looking for is someone to debate Ben Shapiro, have him show up, talking about uh, Israel-Palestine. That would be a great uh, discussion. Um, but what's this one? Uh, why bash Adam Smith? Let's get to the real issue of this topic of uh, episode 704. 
So why do you bring this up now? Why does this matter? I brought well, as a matter of fact, it's always been an issue for me, uh, and uh, I, I have a way to end the madness, to, to come to a truce um, on this subject. I, uh, too, well, by the way, it's that, that, that two-volume work of Rothbard's is one of my favorite books of his, and I love most of his books. It's sort of like almost like a bathtub reading because it's such an entertaining uh, tour through the personalities and all the issues, going back to Plato and Aristotle. It's a fantastic book. Um, and his attack on Adam Smith is mostly true as far as it goes. Uh, but uh, I think that it's a bit imbalanced. Uh, and then, but on the other side, um, my own story is, for example, when I was watching a great series called Econ Pop put on by John Popola, uh, uh, who's, uh, I don't know if he's been on your show, I got into an argument with a lot of people who also have been on your show. That includes Don Boudreaux, it includes Mark Skousen, um, and uh, it includes uh, Johan Norberg. Uh, those people are, I, I, all I said is, please, uh, let's stop calling Autumn Smith the father of economics. He wrote a great book. I believe he wrote a great book, but it's a deeply flawed book. It's got so much in it that socialists can use against us that if you keep putting it out there as, uh, as what amounts to the Bible of economics and of free market economics, then you are going to be vulnerable to those who would point out uh, that there's so much in that book that gives aid and comfort to socialists. Okay, I, th- I think that's uh, something I hadn't heard, and I'm like, okay, I get it. And he, he does drop some uh, sweet nuggets on that. Uh, prices, division of labor, and long-winded Gene Epstein. Tough to get clips. Explanation of what's happening. Yes, no, I, I agree with that. I see uh, in this discussion, Tom, I think it's sort of two tracks. In, 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 I, where, where I have uh, a huge correspondence with a lot of uh, people I really like and really respect out there who are just absolutely drunk on Adam Smith, in my view, and that's uh, Don Boudreaux, Mark Gowson, Russ Roberts. They, they, they think that this is the book, and you're right in making that point, that, uh, the point that you just made, but, but I, I want to go uh, for the easier point. I want to show that uh, that in particular, uh, the, uh, the, the, the uh, Peter uh, Schiff had an argument in the, uh, in, in the mud at Occupy Wall Street that you can see on video where some kid is quoting Adam Smith back to him. And uh, how about just pointing out, uh, related to what you just said, that Adam Smith made a distinction between value in use and value in exchange. He, he, he talked about the Marxist idea of essentially production for use versus production for exchange or production for profit. He couldn't figure out uh, the, uh, the, the, the water diamond power. Paradox, at least not in that book. Ironically, Rothbard points out that he had resolved it in his lectures, but it doesn't mysteriously occur in his book. And so he writes very, very clearly that value has two meanings and that water is so much more valuable than God. I'm not going to keep going on with that. We're going to play extra clips. What the, the seminal parts to take away from that is that uh, Adam Schiff, once again, I mentioned that on episode one that I had seen Adam Schiff down there on uh, Occupy Wall Street, and, and the people are using Adam Smith against him. Gene has a great point. Uh, you don't want to be using your own economics against you. Never do the bidding of the regime, in a sense. Okay, this is, uh, let's see, 25 minutes in here. Labor theory of value, shortage of credit, and more are discussed. Uh, entrepreneurship, uh, 2545. Let's go. Guy been on your show is my friend Michael Strong. Uh, Michael's writing a book about entrepreneurship, and uh, and and he neglects to state. I, I told him that in books called Blind Spot, and uh, and uh, I think it's a good book uh, in in process. But uh, he neglects uh, to point out that the blind spot of so many modern e- economists about entrepreneurship is echoed. Uh, of course, it was repeated most egregiously by the blind spot in Smith about entrepreneurship when he had full access to Kantian. I mean, that's the other uh, point. So therefore, I think that uh, related to Smith 
his problems and blind spots is that um, he, he could read Cantillon. He could read what essentially is two chapters on the role of the entrepreneur, Cantillon specifically stating that the, the entrepreneur buys at fixed prices and then, and then he faces uncertainty. Um, then, again, actually, in a way, I think the best chapter on entrepreneurship in Cantillon is when he's talking about these high rates of interest that, uh, that entrepreneurs borrow at and the way they turn a profit uh, on these high rates of interest, which allows them. Uh, but again, it's not even like for the future. It's that they're actually supplying needs in a relatively short run. Okay, uh, Gene uh, goes on. Uh, great stuff. Uh, last one we'll do here is, is there anything good to take away about uh, Adam Smith? Uh, quality question, Tom Woods. Thanks for asking it. Still some wonderful things in Adam Smith's book. I want to reach my hand across the table with those people who seem to have this great love of that book. There are passages in that book that I also love. Uh, uh, Rothbard does say, does talk about the undoubted importance of Adam Smith's famous passages on the invisible hand. But I also think, however, that uh, Adam Smith wrote some wonderful things in favor of free trade, uh, that um, he wrote about, uh, and indeed, he did connect, I think, free trade with the division of labor. He talks about, let me quote a couple of sentences, and maybe we can end on that. I have in front of me, the tailor does not attempt to make his own shoes, but buys them of a shoemaker. The shoemaker does not attempt to make his own clothes, but employs a tailor. The, father att the farmer attempts to make neither the one nor the other, but employs those different art artificers. All of them find it for their interest to employ their whole industry in a way in which they have some advantage over their neighbors. What is prudence in the conduct of every private family can scarce be folly in that of a great kingdom. So because, and the word kingdom, we might uh, bridle that. But again, I think that's a very eloquent defense of uh, free trade. And one other passage, which uh, sounds... We have You're going to have to wait and, and listen to it all yourself to know what that other passage is. That's as far as we go at this point. Okay. Uh, next one, we're going to... And we're cruising along here. We're trying to get it all in. Uh, but this is the Tom Woods week. Okay. So um, what we have here is... Uh, Tom Woods, episode 796, Secession is for Morons, says Ben Stein of Ferris Bueller's Day Off fame. Bueller, Bueller, you know, that kind of guy. And then ben, win Ben Stein's money. He also uh, was on there with, uh, that was Jimmy Kimmel that he had that on there, that show. Uh, by the way, you may not know this. Uh, what I know about Ben Stein is his dad was a very famous economist, Okay. Uh, wrote a book that's still, I think, used in, in whatever. Ben Stein was also an economist, and he was in the Nixon White House. I watched a documentary several years ago, and they're talking to him, and he's crying about the day that they found out that Nixon was resigning and whatnot. Uh, he was in the White House as a as an economist, and then he ends up going into uh, Hollywood, and you know he's on uh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. So that's that's the guy we're talking about. Anyway, he writes an article. This is back. Years ago, 2016, I want to say, about secession. This is, by the way, this is, go back here. Uh, California is after the 2016 election. Trump is elected. Big thing, CalExit, about California um, seceding from the nation. Everyone's like, oh, you know, now the lefties are doing it. And I'm like, yeah, let's do it. Okay, I'm up in there in the state of Jefferson. We've been trying to do this for years. And Ben Stein writes an article about it, and Tom talks about it. This article that I want to talk to you about is by Ben Stein, who is the well-known actor, and before that he was a speechwriter for Richard Nixon and Gerald Ford. There you go. He has an article called Secession is for Morons, and I thought, oh, man, come on now. Come on now. What is that? And by the way, this, this caught my interest only because uh, MTG wrote something about it, and it's been all over the news lately. Uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, who I think is a uh, complete moron, but they're never It's all about. And he is saying 
that he's outraged that there are people. It's not even that he's, he's outraged. He's, he, he is contemptuous. Let's say it that way. He's contemptuous of people in California who are saying that the election of Donald oh, Trump really is. should spur us to think about secession. And obviously California is a wealthy state, and it would be one of the uh, biggest economies in the world even as an independent state. So much like Texas. this is stupid, according to Ben Stein. Why is it stupid? Well, he says, they don't know history. Oh, boy. So now we're going to get a history lesson from Ben Stein. And he says, the ultimate in idiocy is this idea that California should and could secede from the rest of the union and become a separate country. And he says, it's almost unbelievable, and yet it's also fascinating in a macabre way. Oh, he macabre. says, the idea that a state could secede was what led South Carolina to proclaim secession as soon as Lincoln was elected in 1860. <laughs> In short order, South Carolina was joined in this strange idea by, and then he goes on and lists the, some of the southern states. And then he says, if it had not been for Lincoln's arresting state officials, Kentucky and Maryland would have seceded too, and that would have been the end of the USA as we know it. All right, let's stop right there. In short order, South Carolina was joined in this strange idea. Strange idea. What strange idea is that? The idea of self-determination. The idea that a people should not be kept in a political association that it does not want, if I may quote Ludwig von Mises. That is the strange idea. Okay, let's keep going on here. This next one, uh, Tom Woods then kind of breaks down as a historian, uh, his understanding and what Madison basically said about uh, SCOTUS can't be superior and gives the state power to the federal, much like Frankenstein's monster can't be superior to Dr. Frankenstein. The creator is in charge of the created thing. Uh, and, thus, and, and just keep in mind, uh, what if the monster just gets out of control? Now, here's an interesting concession by Ben Stein, however. Interesting concession. He says, the amazing thing is that there is nothing in the Constitution forbidding secession. Ah, well, that's okay. At least he admits that, which, by the way, automatically proves it's constitutional. So he doesn't try to say it's unconstitutional. He doesn't. Well, he says no, it's Not only that, he uh, says there's never been a Supreme Court case saying secession is illegal. Look for it. Go ahead. You won't find it. Well, there he's wrong. Texas versus White, 1869. Oh. So he's wrong about that. But to heck with that. The states created the federal government, and by extension, the federal courts. They can't have their own creation tell them what they're allowed to do, what they're not allowed to do. So you can ignore that. In fact, let me, let me cite here a post of my own. I'm typing this in. I could just edit this out of the episode, but doggone it, I am not going to. Don't edit. Go to my Don't. site for a post from early 2011. James Madison, colon, states, states need recourse against courts. This is, now, it's, I'm not saying Madison was a big secession supporter, but, you know, the implications of what somebody says are important. Let me read you this little passage from Madison from his famous report of 1800. And you'll see what I mean about how the states are ultimately the players here, not the courts. And he's saying the resolution of the General Assembly, he's talking about the Virginia Resolutions of 1798, which spoke about the power of Virginia to interpose between the federal government and the people of Virginia when the federal government exceeds its authority. It says, the resolution of the General Assembly relates to those great and extraordinary cases in which all the forms of the Constitution may, may prove ineffectual. I'm not going to let him read the whole thing. I just thought it was interesting there. Uh, once again, he, he then ends it with, um, it's much like Frankenstein's monster can't be superior to Dr. Frankenstein because it's the thing that he's created. We talked about that. At, I think it was episode 82 with Walter E. Williams saying uh, the principal and the age, the principal, the states create the agent, which is um, uh, the federal government. The principals are always in charge. Now, the problem you have is when the agent or the, the monster becomes too much, 
which we're basically uh, living in at this point. So um, whoops. Uh, but the, the states have allowed that. The the principal has allowed that. Um, the SCOTUS has all allowed that. There you go. Um, the will of the people. Let's keep going. Court case. Then he says, but the will of the people is that we stay together as a union. And it was that will, greatly compounded by the wish of many to end slavery, that led to the bloodiest war in U.S. history. More than 600,000 men died to keep the union together and to free the slaves. We'll get to the slaves in a minute, but how about that? The will of the people cannot be questioned. The will of the people, that's what we say to 600,000 deaths. Well, it was the will of the people. Maybe the will of the people is perverse. Plus, how do you know that's the will of the people? People weren't allowed to speak their minds during the war. People were thrown in jail for speaking against the war. Tom DiLorenzo will tell you all about that in his book, The Real Lincoln, but any reputable historian will tell you all about that. So how do we know what the will of the people was? There were a lot of northern newspaper editorials at the time that said, let the South go. It would contradict every single thing we stand for to engage in a violent suppression of their withdrawal from the Union. Now, I've done an episode. I guess I'll have to link to it. I've done at least one episode, probably more, on secession, but where I go through point by point the arguments in favor. And the arguments are just overwhelming. Yes, you have done that, Tom. Okay, let's keep going on here. Uh, this next one we have is, once again, still secession for uh, morons. Um, this one is uh, morons in Southern California. Ben Stein, where is, here we are. Okay, then he says, do the morons who are proposing secession here in sunny Cal have any idea sunny of Cal. just how serious a matter this is? Obviously, there is no issue on the table remotely as morally compelling as ending slavery. What is even remotely worth even the possibility of fighting another civil war? All right, this is so confused. This is so confused, I really don't know where to start. So he begins by saying, there's no issue on the table remotely as morally compelling as ending slavery. Okay, but since ending slavery had nothing to do with Lincoln's decision to launch the war, that, I mean, any historian will tell you that. Any historian. He was very, very blunt about that. He wanted to preserve the Union. So what he should say is, there is no issue on the table remotely as morally compelling as saving the Union, maybe, because that's what the war was fought over. And by the way, that's not at all to say that the South wasn't at all thinking about slavery when it seceded. These are two entirely different questions, by the way, the secession and the war. Yes, no doubt the southern states were thinking about slavery, at least some of them. Some of them were thinking about slavery when they seceded. But that's a very different question about why was the war fought. Okay, uh, last clip we'll play here from this one is uh, history and comedy. I don't know if they're always a mix, but they maybe should be. Uh, just and then he says, and maybe, ask. just maybe, the schools could start teaching history. The Ben Stein history is a comic book <laughs> in which there are bad people in the states and good people running the federal government. And sometimes those bad people need to be hit with a hammer. And it's a good thing we handed those hammers to the people in the federal government because they're wise and wonderful. I guess if you're a Nixon and Ford speechwriter for a while, you'd start to believe stuff like that. But in fact, the schools, if they were to start teaching history, it would be to teach the opposite of what Ben Stein wants taught. What, what Ben Stein is talking about is being taught everywhere. Everybody believes what he believes about secession and slavery, but particularly about secession. It's stupid. Well, I'll, I will give him credit. At least he admits that the Constitution doesn't forbid it. So, I mean, that's better than most schools. But we really should have schools that teach real history. And incidentally, I might point out to you, by the way, that starting today, we're actually running a bit of a... Okay. <laughs> and Tom goes into one of his own history clubs, uh, uh, classroom thing. Okay. Uh, let's, that was episode 796. Secession is for morons, says Ben Stein. Uh, but a lot of things have changed since then. And, and you know, the world's gone crazy. I don't know if you'd still say this, uh, but it's always interesting to see who's saying what. Now, he's saying that there's a, a GOP person from uh, talking about from the, the liberal California. He lived in California, so maybe he didn't want that. 
anyway, uh, things change from there. Okay, let's go to episode 812. We're cruising here to the end. Uh, this is the truth about Chile's Augusto Pinochet with Axel Kaiser. I thought this was interesting because we love Hapa. There's the meme about him in uh, basically community removal, uh, helicopter rides. Let's start with this one is a mixed feelings on Pinochet. By the way, I wasn't was that even to this day, this people in Chile are very divided over their regarding their views of Pinochet and his legacy. Is that a correct impression on my part? That's a correct impression, Tom. And, and you know, um, we, we were on the verge of a civil war in, in 1973 when uh, Pinochet took uh, over power, you know, and Allende killed himself. Some people think that he was killed by the Chilean military. Actually, he shot himself with an AK-47 that was given to him by Fidel Castro himself when he came to Chile after Allende had been elected. So uh, we, were, we were on this um, Cold War logic, and in the end, the anti-communist forces and anti-totalitarian uh, forces prevailed, which does not justify what happened later, but the, the country is still divided. You have to keep in mind that uh, Pinochet, after 17 years in government, he had this referendum, yes or no referendum, where he reintroduced democracy, but the question was if he stayed as president with an elected parliament and everything, or he had to go home. He lost, but with 44% of the votes. We don't have to forget that. So he had uh, he was very popular among uh, the Chilean uh, population, and, and this is a fact, even today. All right. That's okay, so some mixed feelings on uh, Pinochet. Uh, not a big fan myself, but interesting guy. Uh, threw communists out of helicopters. Uh, Tom does get into that. Was he doing his best for the people? Allende, Pinochet. Were always and everywhere terribly exploited. How can you show that that's not correct? Well, you have to look at the numbers. We had a thousand percent inflation year, year adjusted inflation in 1973. We had scarcity of all basic goods. You, you name it, you know, from uh, rice to bread to anything you want, meat, whatever, milk. We didn't have these things. Uh, we had um, government was completely uh, bankrupted by these uh, policies of uh, printing money and spending money and all this, you know, uh, industries were confiscated and they were not working. I don't know any Chilean left-wing economist, serious left-wing economist, who would agree with the statement that Allende had a reasonable economic management of the country. No one in Chile, not even left-wing economists, maybe some Marxist economists even uh, today defend Allende, but not the left-wing serious economists defend the economic management of the Allende regime. They all have written, have read papers, books, and they all admit that the economic management the socialist central plant economy that he tried to introduce in, in Chile was a disaster. Okay, so which is interesting if you look at the history of that. Uh, so Allende was the socialist, then Pinochet comes in. He's kind of a right-wing dictator. Uh, dictators are all bad. Is it, it just depends on which one you are, so get thrown out. Okay, uh, let's keep going on this one. Subject to d dictatorship uh, on some of these countries. Then we have some Chilean people don't like this. They don't uh, tolerate this uh, mismanagement, this chaos, basically. And that's why even today, Tom, even today, if you go to take a look at the surveys, the most respected institutions among Chilean people are the armed forces and police. It's incredible. After everything that happened, and, and this is a puzzle to many people, but it's because Chileans don't like this kind of uh, chaotic situations, and then they resort to a strong person or a guy who can bring back order. And, and I have to repeat, Pinochet, well, he obtained 44% of the votes in after 17 years of dictatorship. So we got 44%, uh, then he took over, uh, and they were they were somewhat okay with that. Okay, uh, keep going along here. I'm trying to push through here. Um, who is Pinochet? Is Pinochet, 1973 rolls around. Who is this man? Had anybody ever heard of him? 
he was really not very well known. He he was um, not very important uh, figure within the military. He had not been a great student. He had not been uh, someone who would call your attention because he was very vocal in any respect. He had no known ideology. This is incredible. No one no one knew if he was left wing. As I said, Allende himself uh, appointed him a commander in chief of the of the uh, of the army, basically. And uh, so he was no one special, so to speak. Uh, and um, when when he had to act, he even hesitated because the guys who really wanted the coup and who really pushed for the coup after what happened with the deputy's chamber were the guys from the Navy, Merino. And Pinochet was the last one to, to say, OK, I'm, I'm with you and I'm... I'm... I got the, the feeling of some of this where he was... He kind of a fan. I mean, this guy's more, a little more right wing. He understands the Mises caucus. I mean, not the Mises, Mises Institute and all that. So it's fine. He's got a little libertarian stuff. He talks about, um, Friedman and some of these others that came down there to help him with economics. So you know, Pinochet was definitely better than Andy, especially if you have a little bit of a, a right wing bent to you, but he's still kind of a piece of trash. Um, 23, let me see. This one is a helicopter rides. Just go into that. Had several people, libertarians, say to me, whatever good you can say about Pinochet is clearly overwhelmed by the human rights abuses because it doesn't matter how much he freed markets. If a single person died, it can't be justified, and that's where they leave it. What do you think about that? I think that's a nonsensical argument. I, I don't know. I mean, would they, have, would they rather have a dictator that uh, besides from you know, uh, human rights abuses – leaves a disaster, an economic disaster as a legacy? Like, like would they go for Castro, Castro rather than Pinochet? Because, because Castro, we all know that Cuba is a, is a, it's a disaster economically, that people are, are, you know, have no access to basic goods and all this, and we all know that the healthcare system is a myth, and all these things are, are basic lies that you see replicated in the New York Times everywhere, but we all know this is not true. And, and when he dies, everyone speaks about the great Fidel, and even Obama didn't dare to, to say something against him. But when you go to Pinochet, who... Of course, they were many cases, but let's put, let's put the things uh, in perspective. According to the official records of the Chilean uh, government, democratic government, uh, under Pinochet, 3,000, a little more than 3,000, some, something more than 3,000 people were killed, 3,000, most of them between 1973 and 1975. The justification for this was fighting against terrorism, Marxism, and all this. Okay. And this is, of course, terrible. It happened. But when it comes to Fidel Castro, according to Project Cuba, it's, it's about 100,000 people, human rights abuses. And... I, once again, I'm like, <laughs> you're, you're trying to say that your country, and I understand this guy may have a little bit of a bias here because he's from uh, Chile probably. Uh, but when you're trying to compare your human rights abuses of your president, uh, putting people, literally dropping them alive out in the middle of the ocean uh, from a helicopter, um, which is horrible. They're communists. I get it. They're bad. Do it you as you will. But to justify that because Castro killed people, completely different country, completely different situation. Eh, this seems a little shitty. Um, so uh, look, how about try not to be, let's, let's just bring me in here and make sure. How about try not to be a shithole country? There you go. That's, that's, that's my take on that one. Uh, last one, uh, but Tom's like, what about these human rights abuses though? You, I mentioned them before. I tried to get it to you nicely. What about them? What are we talking about exactly? Well, they were, of course, people that were tortured and they oh. were uh, missing people. So they, uh, sometimes the um, security police would come, take people away, and then you would never find out uh, if they killed them, what they did with them. And then some of them were actually killed and then thrown into the ocean, the Pacific Ocean. Oh. 
Um, I'm not saying um, all of them were innocent in the sense that they were not engaging in revolutionary activities or terrorist activities, but I'm sure some of them were innocent. And, um, and so the Retic report, Retic report is, is called the uh, official document where, where these uh, casualties were registered and they did the whole, the whole work of, of uh, you know, trying to determine how they were killed and how many people died. And this was done in the 90s. Uh, so when we had democracy, a democracy. So the Retic report speaks, um, shows all about <laughs> when we had a democracy. <laughs> Uh, I'm sorry. I just I want to laugh about that. Uh, I understand left and right, whatever. I, I remember when I was uh, not too, what, a few years ago, early 2000s or maybe uh, Pinochet was on the run, I want to say. And I think he went to France. This is all just coming out of my memory uh, and or Spain. And then there was some extradition where they get, a, you know, get him for war crimes or human rights abuses. I don't know. He's kind of a piece of shit. Uh, and, and I hate that see libertarians try to defend him simply because he pushed communists out the, the airport air, 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 helicopter. Fine. Or that Milton Friedman went down there to help him. Fine. I, you know, he was better on economics and whatever. Uh, I still think, uh, old man piece of shit because, uh, South American countries, whatnot. Okay. Um, Episode 812, The Truth About Pili Chile's Pino Augusto Pinochet. That was that one we just did. This one is, and we've got just, what, uh, two or three more, four more? Jesus. We're, we're <laughs> Tom Woods Month, I think is what we're going to do. Uh, do men really have all the power? Paul Elam on the men's right, my right movement, a men's movement. I could do a whole hour of this one myself. As a family law attorney, and I just want to say real quick before we get into this one, Paul Elam is fine. I saw the Cassie J. Uh, Red Pill documentary. I, I enjoyed that as well. He was kind of featured on there. It's what changed her from being a feminist to kind of a, I don't know, sympathizing with men's rights. That, uh, that documentary is very good. My problem, I do family law. I, I deal with this stuff all the time. There's some misnomers about court and about men, men do, don't prepare well, then they want to use men, uh, courts are against us, and then when they do that, they become the victims, and then they allow the court system to, in a sense, um, give them an excuse for being a shitty client. I have great clients, I have bad clients, uh, I could go over and over, and I've done this with stories of, of them just making mistakes, and I've done a substack about some of this stuff, uh, Libertarian, the Wild Wild West of, of family courts, uh, check it out. It's Tyler Yonke. T y l e r j a n k e. Substack.com, and I've got some stuff written on there about it. I've been doing podcasts about this. Once again, men shouldn't be victims. They can't act like victims. They have to do some things. They have to prepare for litigation. They have to understand there's courts of equity. There's courts of law. There is ways that they need to understand the outcomes, the possibilities. And yes, sometimes mothers are. Um, favored in certain circumstances, but if you do the right thing, you're not going to have a problem. And if you stop making mistakes, you've got to prepare. If, if the courts are against you and they're, they're um, stacked against you, then you can't afford to make mistakes. And some of the men's rights movement gives them that reason to say, hey, it's not my fault. Then do something about it. These are your kids. It's very important. Okay, uh, we've been through this with this what Greg Ellis guy and the respondent. It's kind of a piece of shit, and he gives a bad name to some of these things. So uh, let's do some of these uh, once again. Um, this is Paul Elam, and uh, this the one here, Pinochet. Oh, I still had one left of. Uh, let's let's get rid of the Pinochet one. Boom. Okay, there we go. Uh, let's do this one. This next one, Paul Elam. 
I actually like this guy. I think he's got a lot of good things today. He doesn't bring these things up as, as victims. Um, hat tip to the red pill, Casey J, men's right movement. Uh, what is it? Is a little bit convoluted in this culture right now. This one's about power. With. Anybody that's any man that's ever been in a family court trying to get access to his children from a hostile ex would have a very different picture of what power is than somebody who hasn't been through that. I do want to get to that in a minute, but let's imagine a devil's advocate scenario in which somebody comes at you with, let's look at men as a percentage of CEOs, or let's look at men's income, or men in positions of leadership, whether political or otherwise. That's overwhelmingly tipped toward men. So how is it that you can say that men are not, in fact, really running the show? Okay, good. That's a really good point to bring up. If we want to look at it through an occupational lens, through position and power, we look at politics, we look at CEOs for Fortune 1000 companies, which I think right now are are less than 5% women. If we're going to look at it through that lens, shouldn't we also, or rather looking at it through what's called the glass ceiling, shouldn't we also look at it through the glass cellar? Uh, the vast preponderance of people in uh, very dangerous professions, very brutal work, harsh and dangerous, are also men. Are the people who crawl down into our sewers are almost all men. Uh, the people that get on our crab boats and fishing boats in order to provide for their families are almost all men. The people that die in our wars are almost all men. So it seems a little disingenuous to me that if we're going to point at professions and say, okay, these are dominated by men, that we not also take a look across the board at all professions and realize that the most powerless ones in our culture are also dominated by, by men. And by the way, uh, my buddy Andy, uh, who's gone through some of this stuff and he's really smart among, along this, he brought that up about how men died when we did our breakdown of uh, Hannah Cox's feminism's take on men's rights, which is just trash uh, from start to finish. Andy and I hit it out of the park on our analysis. Now, sometimes, like I mentioned in there, uh, we're almost hypocritical because I dislike some of the stuff she says so much. I feel like I have to push back. But I encourage you to go find this on our Substack and to watch it or become a member on our Odyssey or uh, Spotify page, because I think um, as a family law attorney and two dads, we don't want ever men to be the victim, and that just does not serve you well. It doesn't serve your kids well, especially from a libertarian point of view. Okay, we'll keep going on here. 629 in family courts. Um, take it away, Paul. Say that this is all anecdotal. You're dealing with uh, out particularly outrageous cases. But surely there's some way to aggregate the numbers and reach some kind of conclusion about what these courts are like, I would think. Well, we know that in 84% of contested custody cases that men lose, uh, that seems like a, a pretty lopsided statistic. Now, I, I work in California. I don't see that at all. That's maybe a, a stat from uh, nationwide, which you get a, a broad swath of, of different you know, statistics that come into this. Uh, blue states, red states, they're a little bit different. The ones that are heavily liberal, they tend to want to uh, equalize things out. So then they tend to say, oh, it's, it's equal. Like California, it's actually much better for men here. So if you're a man in California and you're making mistakes and it's a problem or you're not getting the right custody, it might be uh, one, you've put your dick in crazy and it's a new child and you're, you're splitting early on this relationship. Let's say you're a father and you've had kids for five years or so. You're likely going to get 50, 50. It's just going to happen unless you're a piece of shit or she's a liar and she puts forth, you know, like fake rape claims, which I can't believe I'm, I'm doing family law. I'm having parties that are married for 20 years and a party is claiming that they were <laughs> raped on their first date. I had literally had that. Uh, it's insane. So women will say crazy shit. Uh, the point is though, you can push back and with litigation and doing the right thing, you can uh, 
push back on these things and, and get the right stuff. I don't know if that's his claim, uh, but I imagine this 80% or the stat that he's saying here is nationwide. To me, we know from the tender years doctrine, which came along as a response to patriarchy yep. way back, late 1800s, early 1900s, that the default setting for family courts was to assume that mothers were more fit custodians of their children. Um, that is an... I, sorry to push back on this a little bit. Uh, you got to admit, um, child zero to like three years old, uh, mother, there's a bomb there. There's breastfeeding involved. If you don't take that into account, you are somewhat crazy. And I understand there's crazy women. Once again, don't put your dick in crazy. Uh, so you've got to take into these things into account. That should be separated. Let's take a, an account of a 14-year-old. You've been involved and you've been married this you know for 20 years. Now you're getting divorced. Your kids are 14 years old, 12 years old, maybe nine years old. Dad should have that initial. Why not give them the chance? They've been taking care of this child for for years. They should be able to do it. Let's keep going. Institutional bias that is right there under our nose. We see it all the time. We see it in the results of custody disputes. We see it in the numbers of men who are incarcerated for being unable to afford alimony or child support. I don't think it's anecdotal. What's anecdotal is the numbers of men who commit suicide, the ones who end up living on the street, living in their cars, uh, having to live with relatives in order to meet their child support payments. Those I would look at as anecdotal points, the worst end scenario of the family court system. But overall, uh, men I was told when I divorced that uh, you might as well bring your wallet in there and uh, forgive my directness, but this is what my attorney said. He said, you have a penis, you're at a disadvantage. Okay, uh, could be true. <laughs> uh, by the way, if we're going to go around the, 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 the route of being a Chad, you're going to have your wife stay home, then you're going to suffer the consequences when you get a divorce. And when you do so, um, your wife hasn't had a job, you're going to be paying up. Sorry, I, I, I don't know what to tell you. Uh, or we go down the feminism route where you're having a dual income family, your wife's working, and you're not going to be paying because you're equalized out. You're, there's parity involved. There's a whole, there's problems we have both sides. So pick and choose. What are you going to do? Okay. Uh, no fault divorce. Uh, what do you think about this? I'm not a big fan of myself, but keep going. What kind of reforms are you advocating? Anything specific? What do you want to see happen? I'd like to see an end to no fault divorce. For one. All right. Let's let's stop right there. Elaborate on sure. it. Tell us exactly what that I mean, most people know what that is, but just just in case exactly what that is and what the problem with it is. Well, the first state uh, back in the 1960s, Ronald Reagan, governor of California, signed no fault divorce into law. And it basically establishes that you can get out of a marriage without reason, without cause at any point and without consequence that you can and marriage being a contract, you can basically violate your end of the contract with no reason whatsoever, with no proof of, of breach on the other side. And you can take the house and you can take the children and you can have the, uh, the man's income taken for child support and for alimony. Um, consequently, the divorce rate skyrocketed after that. And the thinking behind it was that there were a lot of women trapped in abusive marriages that couldn't prove that they were an abusive marriage. And this, this was the way to get them out of that marriage, that they didn't have to prove that there was abuse going on. And there is, I suppose, some rationale for that because there are some marriages that are abusive. But what it still established was a guideline that gave a, uh, a woman in particular financial incentive uh, once the man, the average divorce happens at about seven years. That also happens to be once the first child enters school and when the man starts reaching toward his peak in income. And that provides a financial incentive for women to take the physical property that has been um, gathered in the marriage and the man's income and custody of the children 
and to cut him out of this, the family altogether, uh, consequently hurting the children. And that's what we have is a rampant divorce rate uh, that is tearing our families apart. And I just think that we would be a lot better off if there needed to be cause in a marriage to dissolve it without consequence to the person filing. Okay, so first of all, I would just say I'm uh, not totally agree with that. Uh, the reasons being is it's way too easy for the woman. Women think about litigation much more than men. That's my experience as an, a family law attorney for m decades here. That they come into it with a plan. They've they've they're home, maybe more. They're they've got the schedule taken care of. They've thought about this. The dude's just out working, and suddenly shit's hitting the fan. Maybe he's cheating on her. Whatever. Uh, that's that's the problem. So the woman is going to be much more accountable. How do you account for crazy? Once, it, what if you've married that you made that mistake? She's fine. Maybe she didn't tell you that she's bipolar. Have this way too much. Uh, now she's crazy, and you need to get out of this. Uh, this this deal this contract uh you can't account for that in any way so uh maybe there should be a default of 50 50 i get that for uh, children uh but i don't necessarily agree with this because the woman's going to prepare for this she's going to have all this stuff she's going to blame you for all kinds of stuff even crazy uh i'm not a fan of uh the no-fault divorce it would make my job completely completely insane at this point uh, last one we'll do here is the Violence Against Women Act. Totally agree with uh, Paul Elam on this one. Uh, let's go here and play the away. Violence Against Women Act. We hear an awful lot about this, and again, it's it's like with a lot of legislation, it has such a benign name. Is there anybody in favor of violence against women that it? Oops. Uh, hang on here. For some reason, I, I just stopped it here. Let's uh, uh, get this back in and go, Tom. It's like the Patriot Act. Who could stand against that? Right. And, uh, and certainly no one, not me, nobody I know, is in support of violence against women. That doesn't mean the Violence Against Women Act is even, even has any efficacy toward that end. I mean, there's big questions about that, whether or not it does. But what it is is essentially a gendered law uh, in a society that is supposed to be about equal treatment under the law. It only recognizes female victims and male perpetrators, despite the fact that all the valid evidence that we have in, and I mean from CDC to Harvard, uh, Martin Fibert did a, an annotated bibliography of over 400 studies with a sampling of 371,000 people in surveys that establishes that intimate partner violence is, has what we call gender symmetry. It's roughly equal between men and women. And we end up, as, as people might have seen in the Red Pill movie, 2,000 federally funded shelters for women in the United States. Again, that's not a problem. Uh, I don't think we should necessarily consider the federal government a solution to all social problems, but certainly I don't have issue with shelters being funded for victims of domestic violence. But none of these shelters service men. They turn them away. Okay, uh, yeah. So men are, I, look, the, the, I'm not denying that at all. Um, part of the problem you have there, though, is I just don't want to see anything to do with uh, the federal government kind of like coming into this at all. So uh, helping them out. I, I thought it would be interesting real quickly because we did this, um, uh, I don't want to say hate watch, but um, false allegations here by Hannah Cox. Let's, have uh, virtually no oh, incentive to gosh. lie or falsely report and just about every reason to stay mum. In fact, some studies show as many as 60% of sexual assaults are not reported. When it okay, comes to- I, I, I... <laughs> Okay, I, I probably shouldn't <laughs> get to play me talking about her doing about false allegations. But uh, what she said there is false allegations. And then the point of the whole thing I make is how do you know they're 
well, or allegations not made too. That was another one. 60% weren't even made. How do you know they weren't actually made? They were, <laughs> they, you don't know. Uh, the false allegations one though is also pretty, uh, crap, but uh, check that out. Uh, we do a great breakdown. I'm going to skip episode 832, which is do men. Oh, that, that's the one we just talked about. Do men really have all the power? That's Paul Elam, men's movement. Uh, the next one was 848. Shouldn't, I shouldn't write off the left altogether. This is a Great conversation with Tom Woods and Dave Smith talking about the left and how you shouldn't uh, necessarily write them off. You should have this conversation with them. Uh, this was obviously before the Reno reset. It was obviously before COVID. I'm going to skip this one, but uh, go check that out. It's episode 848. Uh, I think um, there's maybe some some things that I would totally disagree with at this point, at this now. But um, we're going to go into Cato VP attacks Ron Paul story. Uh, I share stories I have kept secret. This is, uh, uh, what's his name? What's the guy's name here we're talking about here? Tom, Tom Wood, Tom something. Tom Woods. Uh, we'll start off with this one. Uh, this one starts out with in defense of libertarian infighting. So um, here we go. I want to defend libertarian infighting for a minute, if I may. Sure. If somebody is mixing up the message and sending the wrong message to people, why would you not want to correct that? Why would you say, well, to each his own, everybody has his own definition of libertarianism? No, that's not true. What are you talking about? Well, we can't have that. That's not to say we can't have some open questions among ourselves that haven't been completely resolved. Well, that's one thing. But I'm talking about questions that are more or less resolved where there's a libertarian who's giving a confusing answer or the flat out wrong answer. What would be wrong with correcting that person? It doesn't mean that's all you do, right? It just means that once in a while you feel you have to do it. Now, in my case, it's true. I do go after other libertarians once in a while, but really not that much. I mean, honestly, you look through my corpus of articles. I mean, how many of them are really criticizing other libertarians? They're usually criticizing critics of libertarianism, which I do as a teaching opportunity. There'll be some article on Salon and everybody sharing it. Okay, so there you go. Tom Tom gives his defense for why you should be able to uh, bitch and moan about uh, libertarian infighting. And, and by the way, I, I'm totally in agreement. I did a whole podcast on this neoliberalism, which was uh, uh, Andy Craig, Joe Bishop Henchman after Reno going on there, just trashing Tom Woods, uh, mostly Dave Smith, I guess, Michael Heiss, and uh, it's libertarian infighting. And I did a complete episode of that. Uh, I think I did a great job of dispelling any um, reason why you should listen to any of those people who have never really had a, a real job. That's uh, okay. So background of this beefing. Let's go. Now there's a longstanding rivalry dispute that goes back a long time between the Cato Institute and a lot of other libertarians. And in particular between the Cato Institute and the Mises Institute. Now I'm not going to get into all that. Uh, I'm not even really qualified to get into all, all that, all the, the historical details of that. But I will say that I saw this firsthand myself. Now, again, Basically, my view is there are some decent people at the Cato Institute doing some decent work, and I've read a lot of their stuff and benefited from it. I've cited some of their stuff in my writing. I've recommended some of their stuff on, here on the show, which is more than you can say about what they've done for me. Right? I mean they act as if I don't even exist. So I feel like I've been, reason I've been the adult in the room in this situation. But all the same, in 2006, I won a book prize for my book, The Church and the Market, and it was a prize that was co-sponsored by the Templeton Foundation and the Intercollegiate Studies Institute, and there were three places – first, second, and third for books, and first, second, and third for articles. So I won first place in the book category, and I remember Ed Stringham, and I think a co-author, might have been Ben Powell actually, I can't remember who his co-author was, or maybe he wrote it himself, and I'm not giving him proper credit. Anyway, one of the w winners in the article category was Ed Stringham, who, as you know, if you've listened a long time, has been on this show. 
Well, apparently, in advance, the Cato Institute had agreed to host whoever the winners were at a one-day conference at the Cato Institute. Well, they obviously had no idea I was going to win. Senior fellow of the Mises Institute, they had no idea I was going to win. Their people had been smearing me for years. Tom Palmer, for example. This is a guy – let me pause for a minute. Tom Palmer is a guy I got to know when I was a student at Harvard. Okay. Tom goes into the beefing. There's a whole – backbone or backstory of it part of that has to do with the fact uh rothbard way back in the day he gives you an understanding uh anyway we'll keep going here this is what's the attack about tom come on anyway brink Lindsay attacks ron paul on twitter i mean this already sounds like something out of high school doesn't it but of course they didn't have twitter when i was in high school and he says ron paul's xenophobia <laughs> ron paul xenophobic right was a hideous corruption of libertarian ideas now this is being uttered by the way by a guy who supported well, he's supported quite a few recent wars, including the, the most idiotic war in, in American history, the Iraq War. And by the way, I do allow I'm, – I'm a very open-minded person. I allow for debate on what was the most idiotic war in American history. My vote is the Iraq War, but I'm willing to entertain other possibilities there. He supported that, but Ron Paul's the xenophobe. So Lindsay wants to bomb people on propaganda grounds that wouldn't have satisfied a second grader. So he's okay with all these foreigners dying, but the xenophobe is the guy who doesn't want the foreigners to die. If you can keep up with the Cato Institute lexicon – on stuff like this, then you know you're you're better than I am. So totally detached from reality. Now Lindsay himself is somebody who has favored. He he absolutely hates the fact that libertarians and conservatives have ever worked together. That's terrible. Now you know you all know I have uh, not a whole lot of patience for the neocons, and I've been very critical of them and of uh, a lot of conservatives here on the show to the point where a lot of people said, "Why don't you ever criticize Barack Obama? All you ever do is criticize the right." So you know I don't need to be lectured to about the problems with the right, but. I do know that I make a heck of a lot more converts on the right than I do on the left, and that's something I pointed out on the show quite a few times. Well, Lindsay favors something – a view that he calls libertarian because the left shares some of our views, so maybe they'll want to hook up with us. <clears throat> well, you can check your local listing to see if there is a Brink-Lindsay show on MSNBC, but I'm afraid you will be disappointed. So that's how that has worked. All right, so I personally think it's a bit rich for Lindsay, of all people, to call anybody a xenophobe after all the foreigners uh, whose lives uh, uh, he favored snuffing out. No, I didn't. This is all collateral damage. Yeah, you had to know that was going to happen. You had to know that chaos was going to result. You had to know that millions of people are going to be displaced from their homes. And if you didn't know that, then you're a moron who's not entitled to an opinion in the first place. Okay. <laughs> Tom does a great job of just kind of uh, blasting through this. Uh, we're done with that one. And I thought one last thing I would say is I did this thing, like I mentioned here, um, uh, called the clubbing, uh, clubbing Mises with a, with Plank 3.5. This is, uh, <laughs> but I played a clip here. This is me watching myself play a clip of uh, the, the fifth column talking about Ilya Shapiro and how he was treated with Cato. The main negative surprise was that the Cato Institute, where I spent almost 15 years, was completely silent. Mm -hmm. Oh, you would think that an institution devoted to free speech um, and academic freedom and integrity uh, would have done something about that, let alone uh, any conceptions of loyalty to me. Um, why, do you think, why, why do you think that was? Um, that'll have to be the subject for a different podcast. Okay. Um, but but been, it, does, it sounds been, like it didn't surprise you. Um, uh, let's just say it, it didn't surprise me as much as it would have five years ago. Sure. There are certain tendencies at Cato, both uh, managerial and, and ideological, that have been going in directions that uh, I think are not uh, good, not just with respect to me, but in terms of promoting Cato's own values. Okay, I, I play that as part of that whole breakdown where um, the, the Cato guys, and, and there's, there's, I know Tom Woods, um, Scott Horton like to say, oh, they're foreign policy, whatever. Um, Ilya, not Shapiro, but Ilya, I'm trying to remember the other guy's name. I have him in my open where he's like the case, libertarian case for vaccines. And, you know, go fuck yourself. Uh, this last one we're going to do here is 
episode 914, a gallop through Soviet history. I thought this one was particularly interesting because it, I don't know that it takes a, a contrary view, but it takes a different view of kind of Michael Malice's white pill or Maybe it's a, a, a tag along uh, of his book about uh, Soviet history, but this is from a guy who grew up in Soviet Union. Maybe next, uh, like that Axel uh, Kaiser, who was down in Chile. So he maybe is a little biased on this. But um, here we go. What is this first one out? Good Lenin, bad the Stalin. Sympathizing circles. It's the Good Lenin, bad Stalin myth. In fact, my own professor of Russian history, Vladimir Brovkin said that this drove him crazy, that there were people who believed that Lenin was basically a good guy and then Stalin came along and corrupted everything. How would you respond to that? Oh, well, I'm, I'm doing actually my, my new episodes are on the Russian Revolution, which is all about Lenin. And I started to look at Lenin since his very birth and I looked at his family history and everything. And Lenin, well, I don't know, Lenin started the massive terror. He was one of the institutors of war communism. He ordered like he personally wrote orders so that hundreds and thousands of kulaks would be hanged in public or, or, or so that everyone would be afraid and would just collaborate. Lenin was just as bloodthirsty as, as Stalin. It's just that they had other other political conflicts lay when, when late in Lenin's life. But yeah, Lenin, Lenin was just as ruthless murderer as Stalin was. There, there are no good, good Lenin, bad Stalin thing going on here. And Trotsky also was just as evil as, as these two. So it was, it was kind of weird. But during... Okay, so... There you go. Uh, all bad. That's perfectly good. Uh, next one we're going to go through here on the gallop through Soviet history. Episode 914 was Ukraini Ukrainian terror and starvation fake. Tom Woods, how you dare you say such a thing? But here we go. I actually argued about this on the internet a few days ago because uh, some listeners just look at my look at my logo and decide that I'm very pro-communist and then they add me to various Facebook groups and I got added, added to this Facebook group where there were people with exactly this argument. And, and when you look at the pictures and you look at the, all the documentation, it, it is ridiculous because, see, Ukraine, Ukraine is one of the more fertile, it's one of the more fertile places on the planet. And that's where, that's where like most of the grain was, was, was grown also in the Russian empire. So what Stalin did was he needed money for industrialization and he had also spent like a huge gold reserves on it already. So what he did was that he chose this region where most grain was produced and just confiscated it all and sold it off to Americans. No, seriously, your, your, your country were most like uh, the top buyers of, of this grain from Stalin. <laughs> okay, well, uh, it's, it's good to know that we're <laughs> participating in the, uh, the starvation there. Okay, uh, next one here, uh, Soviet archives. This one rang really true to me because I've been a big fan of like uh, the Dark Woods, uh, the Black uh, Book of communism there's multiple books about uh soviet spies and, and and when the cold war happened and the the wall fell down uh the kremlin opened up a lot of soviet uh spy information to the west and there's publishers that paid millions of dollars to have access to this but the way they had to do it was they had a, an author and that author would then work with a soviet agent who they would go in and read all the documents and then give it back. So uh, there was some really good things we had. Alger Hiss as a as a spy. All these other th things you could document about the the spying. You know, the, um, uh, McCarthy had mentioned. Not totally right, but a lot of this. So there was a lot of uh, verification coming from this. This gentleman says uh, different maybe. opinions on what we found there because some people say we opened the archives and it turns out the crimes were even more scarlet than we realized, and others say we opened the archives and it turns out we had exaggerated the extent of the crimes what did the opening of the archives really tell us uh you mean you mean the archives in moscow yes yes well the archives in moscow told exactly what the people opening them wanted them to say because uh the biggest problem with studying soviet era history in general is that a lot of the documents written by 
in, in the Soviet era by Soviet authors, Soviet historians, like, you know, everyday newspapers, everyday documents written by clerks, they contain falsehoods themselves, okay? So that's the issue. The government blatantly used misinformation, and, and a lot of this stuff is very unreliable. And for me, that's, that's the biggest difficulty when I, when, I do, when I do my Eastern Border show, that I have to triple-check everything. I have to rely not only on these sources, but on the opinions of these sources, because, well, for example, the Russia, Russia these days has tendency to only... Uh, all the archives even haven't been opened yet, for starters. Uh, so the parts that have been opened are obviously thought by Russian experts today as, you know, as being okay to open. So there's still stuff that we don't know about. Right. And so, by the way, there were multiple authors, multiple uh, access archives, archives, you know, are accessed by these different ones. And what was interesting is there would be uh, they were able to say there's all different type of agencies in Russia as well. And KDNV, whatever the, the different um, Soviet uh, KGB thing at the time. Uh, and they had different names for different people, but they were able to correlate these up. So I think a lot of the information we got was legit and good. This guy obviously uh, seems to be a little bit more skeptical, perfectly fine. Uh, last one was, uh, hey, uh, that's uh, that uh, Cold War. How did it end? They had been playing major roles in them. Well, now to complete our incredibly rapid gallop through Soviet history, let's talk about the, one of the most interesting topics of all, which is how it all came to an end. What do you think the contributing factors were? Jeans and rock and roll, man. Jeans and so rock it, and roll. It, so it was that. It, it, it was exactly that. And I've, I've got a bunch of episodes on this because uh, this is how the show started. But you see, uh, my dad, my dad, uh, he used to play bass in the opera orchestra for 20 years. But, you know, as a young student, he wanted to get an electric guitar. And he had to build one on his own because they, they, you could, just couldn't get them there. But so, you know, there, there was always a huge black market for everything. And, and like your average salary for an engineer was 120 rubles per month. That was kind of a higher up salary, like, you know, middle class salary, so to speak. A pair of jeans smuggled in from the U.S. cost about 200 rubles, which is over a monthly salary, obviously. And, and like everyone was making the craziest illegal stuff ever. I mean, and, not, and especially when it came to music, because not only illegal tapes were just circulating around. No, at one point, this was a bit early. This was already, I think, in the 70s. There was there was something called Rentgen is that which is like uh, when people dug through the garbage bins of uh, hospitals looked, looked, looking for old Rengen images, like, used, like Rengen images just thrown out, you know, used, used x-ray x-ray scans. And then they, and they, as they were mobile, they used to imprint vinyls on them. And they, these were called bones. The, the, the Soviet man was ingenious in the way how he basically smuggled in everything. And, and we really, really appreciated all the crazy stuff that we saw because uh, it became really apparent that you guys over there lived, <laughs> lived way better than we did here. I mean, that's that's the kind of way to break down these kind of things. Uh, North Korea, same idea. If you can break through and show that uh, <laughs> uh, Malice talks about this in his newest book. He talks about Gorbachev. I think it was uh, coming to the U.S., going touring something, going to a, a little grocery store and realizing that everything is you know just the normal people have everything and saying they've lied to us. So you've got to keep it down. Okay, uh, last one we'll do here is Gorbachev. Was he really this great person? Malice and Horton seem to think so. How about uh, our, our author here? Who is it? What was the opinion about? of Gorbachev among the general public? See, even though he's gotten the Peace Prize, he's also one of the people who tried to institute prohibition in the Soviet Union. I didn't know that. I don't know how I didn't know that. Was it, was this a productivity measure? Yeah, he just... He just uh, 
See, he was a really truly idealistic communist, and he he really looked at back at Stalin's era and thought and thought that you know, well, this this was wrong, and that the but he essentially thought that communism could work and that people wanted the communism to work. He just thought the bureaucracy uh, were just too selfish and that corruption was not uh, like a corruption was not a product of the socialist government. That the production had come because of ineffective leadership and all that. Okay, so he honestly thought that by giving more liberties, he would kind of make sure make the people ha- make people happier. And that he actually honestly thought that people wanted to live in the Soviet Union, which is crazy. He still committed a lot of crimes. I mean, uh, he's he's the guy who ordered like remember Chernobyl catastrophe, right? In 1986. Yeah, okay? of course. Yeah. Gorbachev tried to really deny and uh, like tried to deny anything, and he really tried to keep everything in control and stop people from panicking. And he only admitted it to the West when um, someone from Sweden had contacted him and asked him, hey, what's going on? The radiation levels are, are getting higher. And what he did personally, what he did personally, and he ordered that, you know, <clears throat> the communist uh, children's mass demonstrations and mass parties would be held uh, very near in the radiation zone next to Chernobyl in the other kind of centers, centers of the region, in the, in the major towns, because he wanted to, to show in public to television that everything was OK, guys. And so he basically dragged the dragged like tens of thousands of kids of school kids to massively radiated areas and forced them to just walk around and you know in these childhood communist party celebration meetings too and they did this and they did this just a day after after this happened he just so basically he's a piece of shit still and i believe that and i know malice horton say oh he's a great you know person to help bring down the uh the the, the cold war or help to end it or whatnot um it, sorry about this um yeah i Quite possibly, but in the same respect, um, you've got to understand that um, he's kind of a piece of shit, right? I think so. Okay, uh, that's that's what we have for this Tom Woods episode. Uh, next one we're doing is clips from day three. Bob Murphy, more Brian McClanahan, more rise and fall. This the progressive era. Where do rights come from? Uh, libertarian drama, Jason Stapleton involved in that, James Damore, you might remember it, Stefan Molyneux, Owen Benjamin, Gareth Porter, Noam Chomsky, Lou Rockwell, Lou Rockwell, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, Michael Malice, Objective Truths, Matt Welsh on libertarianism, and should libertarians support secession? Thanks, everybody. Libertarian Podcast Review, Tom Woods, we powers on. This was two and a half hours. I can't believe we just did that. Take care. Okay, I'm leaving now, my guys. But she's back. And now. Chick-fil-A is completely overrated. It's not that good. I prefer Zaxby's. I prefer Popeye's. Takes a tough man to make a tender forecast, Nick. Uh, I guess that's me. Keep fucking that chicken. (laughs) Should I vote for Dick Cheney on the Libertarian Party? Do I have an obligation to vote for Dick Cheney? I would say so. Yes. Did it work for those people? (laughs) No, it never does. I mean, these people somehow delude themselves into thinking it might, but... (laughs) but it might work for us. That one dude was like, not a podcast, I can't find it anywhere, and they don't have video. <laughs> oh, yeah, Peter Janky, yeah. He's yeah, a- I blocked him. Uh, I'll do it. If he unblocks me, I'll... I'll- <laughs> He'll buy your shirt if you unblock him, Bert. He's a wigger. Yeah, nothing cooler than so a 49-year-old wigger. Like, yeah, I just started I live streaming. Cut me some slack. I'm fucking... I'm pretty high-tech for a boomer. Uh, but anyways... I- boomer. <laughs>